0: um okay now
1: now what now that Uh, 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 uh. (laughs) don't make those noises don't
0: song shame me hello hello
1: and welcome to plants and Papats, the podcast about plant molecular biology science things
0: uh, we Stuff. Are, <laughs> we are Joram <laughs> and Tegan. Hi, hi! It's awesome that you tuned in, you the listener. Um, mm. Thank you very much. You're my best friend now.
1: Yeah, and actually, I'm in I'm in London since only a couple of months, and I don't have any friends. So please be my friend.
0: Um, <laughs> I put your my mic- am going
1: around my workplace and trying to trick people into being my friend. At the moment, is that better? Yeah, that's
0: better. Um better for the microphone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did I, tell,
1: did I tell you guys this last time I'm trying to, like, lure people into making small talk with me while they have their cups of teas? Because I'm in, I'm in Britain and it's, like, obligatory that people drink tea at least eight or nine times a day. So, while they're there, I'm just kind of, like, waiting and lurking and being like, Hi, let me tell you about myself. Let's be friends. I Let's heard, overshare.
0: I heard if you drink from the cup of tea of a different person, they have to be your friend. Otherwise, it's just <laughs> disgusting. So, that's a way to force friend people to just be like... "Yeah." Give me some a sip of your tea.
1: I did like, I met somebody and they were, I was telling like, you know, it's a bit weird because I'm, I'm in this new office and I don't have very many friends and it's like, it's quite nice. It's not super sociable compared to my old place, but like my old place, I was there for seven years. So I knew everyone and they kind of accepted my presence as a loud, annoying thing that just existed. Um, and now I'm trying to integrate myself into this new like ecosystem where I'm, I'm the foreign person. Um. And this, somebody else was saying oh yeah like one good way to make friends in the workplace is to overshare and i was like look at me like do you not think i'm already like i'm doing that that's that's my entire method for interacting with every single person i see like hi how are you today and do you want to hear about my cramps like this, <laughs> this is how i live my life but
0: yeah yeah please it's th- not working quite yet don't overshare more but i have a good thing uh, i have a uh, some some yeah, icebreakers like, oh, icebreakers! We, ice should, breakers, we okay. should do some cool, good icebreakers. Um, yeah, I for, for me, nothing really happened. I released two videos, and they got a total of like a hundred views now on YouTube, um, and it's a great success for the project. So okay, um,
1: everybody, if you're at home, go no, and um, no <laughs> Google Yarm
0: I don't. I don't want to have like fake views on it. Like, like I want to be, like if it if nobody cares, I think it's the op- honest opinion of the internet, and I think that's fine. It just means I have to change the thing that we're doing there so that people care, and I'm aware of that. So, um, I mean,
1: if it helps, you made that really nice time-lapse of the variegated Monstera doing its thing, growing its leaves, and that has, like, many thousands of views, so... um,
0: Yeah, so that's... You're
1: not successful, but your wife's plant is. That's pretty nice. (laughs)
0: Less successful than a house plant, yeah. Um, (laughs) That's my tagline under my CV. Uh, I
1: mean, you also can't fix... you can't um, hire
0: a house plant so please hire me (laughs) beautiful no um the icebreaker that i meant uh, and i wanted to talk about um is this idea like you know icebreakers right you go into a new group of people often like like workshops or conferences or stuff and you're in a group with people and somebody comes up and says like an ice uh, let's do an icebreaker so everybody gets to know each other and they often come up with things like hey what is the craziest thing that you have done what is the farthest that you have traveled and what's
1: your spirit animal
0: what's your spirit animal i mean the spirit animal doesn't uh, include privilege as much but the others definitely do so people sound more interesting oh, if they had okay. more resources available mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. Um so they could travel far or they could do exciting yeah, I, stuff. I, I, they could go skydiving and so that yeah. immediately puts in a hierarchy in the group. You have like the cool people who can do skydiving and you have the people whose coolest thing that they ever did was like return a book late and not pay any fees on it. <laughs> um and that's why some people came up with the idea of doing like a very boring uh, icebreaker where you can still have a little sentence about yourself, but you pick the bo- most boring thing about yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And therefore, everybody is on an equal playing field and you still have something to start your conversation on it. Um, and yeah, my thing that I came up with was just like, I like to drink filter coffee.
1: Almost makes me gassy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oversharing Tegan We talked about this
1: uh, My feet smell really bad If I wear like Synthetic material socks um, Sometimes yeah. my earwax Is a strange color uh, So Tegan <laughs> like, is doing should, The should oversharing like r- <laughs> icebreaker um, Should there be a rule That it's like Not about bodily function It's kind of something like
0: I think that's usually implied In any socii- societal <laughs> context That we talk mm-hmm. As little as possible about our bodily functions, unless we're specifically bringing up that topic. Are you
1: kidding? I feel like, like, many academic situations I've been... Okay, nothing. Yeah, uh, uh, comment, comment, <laughs> penis, comment, comment. <laughs> also, <laughs> motto, motto, motto.
0: <laughs> the common thing with all these situations is probably your presence, so... <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, I mean, like, the general, like, all the old white guys kind of standing together mm. and just, like doing this, oh, look what I, you know, the the original idea of, oh, I'm this, I'm so great because this, I'm so great because of this, and it's like, it's very phallic, it's very penis-y, right? This is kind of always the argument.
0: Yeah, but often they use stand-ins for (laughs) the actual genitalia.
1: I mean, I'm just being more honest, really, like, isn't honesty the best medicine, or laughter, or... vaccination vaccinate your children something yeah, um,
0: yeah so like I, I didn't come up with the idea for the icebreaker um there's a twitter thing we linked that um uh from academic shatter and i quite like that it because it's a huge thread where people share their most boring um <laughs> statements about themselves and i think what are some of the cool ones um now i would have to click the link uh, like uh i mean cool ones and the thing that's only boring
1: should I tell you about my toenails or about my, like, um
0: I carry dental floss <laughs> with head. me every time I leave the house. The, mm. the plastic strings that hold the price tag are still on my sofa. I got it over two years ago. I like corn. <laughs> I signed into a restaurant on Yelp for the first time today. I love wrapping gifts. S- stuff like this.
1: Okay. They are, like, Very delightfully boring. boring. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, but still, they, they tell you something about the people. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, Do next they? time, yeah, I mean, the person who still has the price tag on a sofa, it's just a very lazy person, like a person I don't want to interact <laughs> with, a person who I Maybe actually just blocked ret- on Twitter right now.
1: <laughs> Maybe they're just a very, like, frugal and forward planning person, and they're planning to return the sofa, like, just before the warranty ends.
0: Um, yeah, that could, op- yeah, that could very well be.
1: <laughs> In which case, we commend you well done.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, so... Before it gets any more boring from the boring icebreakers, shall we do the paper?
1: We should do the paper.
0: It's the paper of the week. Yeah, this week's paper... Um, actually, you chose it. So you tell us what why you, why you chose it.
1: It's reciprocal cybrids reveal how organelle genomes affect plant phenotypes. I chose it... Um, because I kind of like the topic of organelle genomes. Generally, that's my specialty that I was working on in my PhD. Somehow I worked on chloroplast development. Um, I like the idea of working out how organelle genomes contribute to the plant because everybody always thinks about the nuclear genome and that's bullshit. We should be thinking about the plastic genome, maybe the mitochondrial genome, but like we all know that guy's only got a few like genes on it anyway. So let's look at the chloroplast genome. Um, but i think i came across this one actually because the first author is somebody that we're following on twitter and i saw either via twitter or by another source that he put up the the story of how this paper came about basically mm. so his name is padrick padrick flood um p d r a i c and then flood is his um twitter handle at um I'm sorry if I pronounced the name wrong. I looked up on YouTube how to say it correctly and it was not helpful. So really it's YouTube's fault and not mine. Um <laughs> did you
0: end up on one of these fake how to pronounce videos where it was like I think I think
1: they I think they're all fake. I ended up on videos which were pronouncing um Irish names and then I was like, oh maybe it's an Irish name, so maybe it does have like quite a an like a unique way of pronouncing it and then I just ended up watching like several videos about how to say Irish names. Uh, okay. And I learned how to say the but that, that actress whose name looks like Cyrus, but it's like Sirisha. but now I already forgot it. Anyway, good story, Tegan. Um, so if you go to at P-D-R-A-I-C Flood, um, he has a Twitter feed which talks about this paper where he says it's been 10 years in the making. And the basic story behind the paper is that he was originally doing some kind of phenotyping, of a whole lot of um, plants looking at how they responded um, in different photosynthetic ways so measuring like basically their photosynthetic efficiency and there was one um, genotype which was really a pain in the butt it was sticking out from everything else and he kind of was interested into looking into that um, but basically this this mutant was messing up his results because it was always an outlier and he kind of wanted to understand why it was messing things up. And anyway, I'm not going to tell this whole story, but go and look at his Twitter feed because it's quite a cool backstory. Um, and he discusses how it kind of – he saw a paper and then he had this talk over beers with some other people about how they would use the new ideas from this paper. We're going to discuss the paper a little bit later on. And – ultimately he got this project which lasted 10 years but ended in a um, nature plants publication which came out last month i guess or this month even
0: um it was accepted uh, received in october 2018 and it was published in uh, january 2020 so accepted 2018 yeah in 2018 they submitted it it was then finally accepted in 2019 in november and then they published it now in on the thirteenth of January, so yeah. Just okay,
1: it was a year between getting. Wow. Okay, yeah. because he also in his Twitter feed he does mention how, like his final thing is kind of thanks very much to the reviewers, who were really great and, made the work much more solid. So I guess there was um, quite a strong changing reviewing process which happened to get it to its final state. Yeah. And just as a small disclaimer for the rest of this talk, I did realise just before we started that I read the preprint that came out in 2018, um, not the final paper. So there's a few details which I might say are a little bit different from yours. I'm so sorry about that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, happens to the best of us. Um, I'm good at my job. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just want to mention... Right. So,
1: how do we begin, Jarm? I
0: just want to mention that uh, you already uh, oh. mentioned the first author. It's from the lab of Erik uh, uh from the Laboratory of Genetics in Wangeningen in um, the Netherlands. Um, just to also include that info. Um, so, yeah, how do, how do we begin? Um, I think the first... Th- first thing we have to say is to talk a little bit about the internet interaction between organelles and the nucleus because this is what all this paper is all about um mm-hmm. you said already like like chloroplasts have their own genomes mitochondria have their own genomes kind of um i like mean barely yeah it, they work a little bit different but I still mean, they, they have, have
1: their own genomes they like share genomes amongst like multiple mitochondria kind of share age like
0: yeah still they have their own DNA great. and they make some proteins themselves and they import others um yeah and because they yeah the, you have this relationship between those that that make their own protein uh, or bet- between the proteins that are made in the organelle and those that are imported you have to coordinate these things and so you have this dependency of the organelles from the nucleus um, but also the nucleus depends on the organelles functioning well so mm. Also, if um, the nucleus has to fit to the um, chloroplasts and the mitochondria,
1: yeah. So the the example of the chloroplast, the chloroplast genome encodes. It's got about one hundred and twenty genes on it. Out of that, like about half of them, or about eighty of them, maybe actually make proteins. But the chloroplast itself has about three thousand five hundred proteins in it. So you've got like some really important things in those eighty, but the chloroplast doesn't function unless or doesn't function properly unless all of those 3,000, 3, sorry, 420 extra proteins um, come in, and they have to all work together properly.
0: And um, you can have different types of um, genetic information on the, in, within the same species in these organelles. Um, and so if you mix several different accessions, you can um, arrange it in a way that... Um, you exchange the chloroplasts or the mitochondria or both of them so to a different type within the same species, and that can lead to very different outcomes, even to mm-hmm. incompatibility and death. We had in, a, in our institute where we work, we had a group that was working on Onotera, which is a, I don't evening, evening primrose. primrose. Mm-hmm evening primrose um, and there you had this very strong effect where depending on which direction you would cross it you would um, swap out just the organelles or just the nucleus and sometimes they wouldn't go along like they would just not work together and the cells that the plants would die and um, their focus of study was to figure out what's going on there but it just shows you how how much variation is possible in this system, like how much Mm -hmm. can go wrong, but also in the other direction, how well they can fit together to give them an evolutionary advantage.
1: Yeah, so I mean, like a really simple example is you imagine there's these, you know, 3,000 things coming from the nucleus and 80 things in the chloroplast, which are made by the chloroplast, but they have to interact together. So for example, photosystem one and photosystem two, these protein complexes, which are involved in the light reactions of photosynthesis, they have parts which are encoded by the chloroplast and parts which are encoded by the nucleus and they have to like interact really closely physically together and if there are any small changes in for example the sequence which alters the structure suddenly those two bits they don't fit together anymore and if those two bits don't fit together again well anymore well you're going to get some like pretty disastrous things happening so this is kind of a, a worst case scenario maybe
0: chaos and the entire the entirety of the variations in the mitochondrial and chloroplast genomes is called the plasmotypic variation and that's a word that comes up a lot in the paper that we're talking about um i try to keep it like simple in our explanation but if we say plasmotypic variation we're talking about just the organelles also if you talk about the Mm -hmm. plasmotype, it is um the com- the entirety of the genetic information in just the mitochondria and uh, chloroplasts uh it's compa- so that's
1: coming from like cyto excuse me mm. <clears throat> it's coming from cytoplasm basically so like the plas yeah. plasmotype is kind of the yeah the, the, s- there.
0: the stuff that's not a nucleus essentially um mm. and then there's a the nucleotype which is then the corresponding thing which is the genetic information within the nucleus um so the- and then
1: yeah sorry no the, the thing is you can mix and match you can have one plasma type with with nucleus so mix everything up and you get different results as arm said and the thing is we don't really know how to predict these results very well like we don't know if we mix A with B or A with X we don't know if it's going to be beneficial or if it's going to like which features it's going to change out of all of the different things that can be in- affected in the plant
0: yeah
1: um, and we don't have a good way to predict it so we can study them by doing the actual experiments of mixing one plasmotype with one nucleus but up until now that just takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of money right
0: yeah and it's it's often hard to do you need a system where you can actually separate these two things well enough that you can be confident in the way that you put them together because if you just do a, a, a standard cross um between your your mother and your parent plant, the nucleus nuclear DNA information gets randomly mixed together. So the resulting plant is not just the nuclear type of one of the parents; it's the nuclear type of both parents combined. Um, and so it's uh, it with just standard crossing it's hard and so you can do some sort of back crossings but they are quite time intensive um and there's some some type of reciprocal experiments where you can do these these types of crosses but then uh, you are very limited in the number of combinations that you can do and so um that just gives that makes it hard to to properly understand what's going on and it's very important to understand what's going on because very often we talk about um like evolution or, or breeding within the same species. So you need some sort of variation to get into your system. So when we talk about improving wheat or maize or any any other crop plant, we don't cross like maize with a related species. We cross maize with a different maize plant. And so you mm. have to have variation between these plants or understanding the processes between these two different plants to have an idea what the outcome will be. Um, and so that's why the, the plasma type and nuclear type interaction is a very interesting interaction to study.
1: And that's also something I like to um, always think about in the context. A lot, of, a lot of the time when we talk about improving plants in the future, we talk about improving photosynthesis. And I think this is another thing where it's really important to keep in mind that if you want to start playing with photosynthesis, you're not just playing with a nuclear genome, you're also playing with a chloroplast genome. And whenever you start screwing with one of those two genomes, you've got to be aware that there could be consequences for the other part. So. Yeah, it's just kind of a, a general, more broad theme that comes out of this, I guess.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what they actually did in the paper. Um, I, in the keynote here, I titled this slide, A Clever System, because it took me a yeah. moment to understand it, but I think it's quite clever.
1: Just to point out, this system wasn't actually developed by um, the authors of this paper. It was published previously by Ravi and Chan in 2010. And the authors just say they they noticed this and they thought, hey, this is a really cool tool that we can then use to um, do the experiments we want, which, again, is one of the beautiful things about science when scientists are building on the groundwork of other scientists.
0: And the basic system works like this, that you have a thing that's called a haploid inducer. And these are lines that if you cross them from the maternal side um then your, your zygote so the the developing excel um drops all of its nuclear dna at one point so it's just the plasma uh the the yeah, the information in the plasmotype um so just the mitochondria and chloroplast still have dna and then when the sperm cell comes it springs along its own nuclear dna Um, the two fuse, the nuclear DNA gets copied and as a result you have a a cell that has 100% the nuclear information from the father and 100% the the plasma information, so the mitochondria and the chloroplast from the mother Um, and with this system uh, when you have a thing that's a haploid inducer, then you can start making crosses where you separate the father nuclear DNA from the mother's um plasma uh um, organella DNA. So
1: you've basically got yourself now a mix and match system where you can take the starting um yeah uh, excuse me the starting organella DNA and mix it in with any nuclear DNA. And this is exactly what the authors did. So they took seven Arabidopsis accessions, um Burr, C twenty four, Kohl, sha. WS and Ellie. So these are mostly kind of common ones. Coal zero is one of the really common ones we use as a C twenty four lure, and even WS. Um, and then like Ellie was this weird one that the first author noticed was something strange was happening. Um, I think it was originally collected on the side of a railway track. He said, mm. and there was like some sort of spraying that had happened with a um, herbicide, which had resulted in a mutation in in this defect in this um, Ellie. Accession. So it has a chloroplast defect, uh, a chloroplast genome defect, which is a mutation in um, PSBA, which is one of the, the large subunits for photosystem 2.
0: And um, the thing that they create then are called cybrids. So if you cross the plasmotype of, of C24 with the nuclear um, information of a call 0 um, the resulting plant is a cybrid that has the 100 percent the nuclear information from COL zero and 100 percent the mitochondrial and chloroplast information from c24 and that allows you to study how these two interact what happens do they have some additive additive uh, defects do they have some other types of defects do they have something that works better um and uh, this is what they did then now they created a, a crossing grid and in the paper it's <laughs> yeah
1: it's all by all. No, no, I'm just waving my hand yeah, around, imitating yeah. a crossing grid. Yeah, uh, everything and everything else.
0: And uh, in the paper, it always is, you, you get this table and it's quite easy to look at. But I always think at all the time that was spent. Yeah. Like every little box in, in such a table um stands for not one plant but for replicates of plants that have been uh, done in this crossing but yeah so now they have the, all these cybrids all of these different mm-hmm. combinations of nuclear and organella information
1: and once they've made all of these many many different kinds of plants now they do many 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 different types of measurements on these different plants so what do they do they got absolute and relative growth mate biomass photosystem one efficiency npq chlorophyll flowering time germination pollen primary metabolites looking at things under different conditions stress tests yeah did i miss something
0: no they did they did a lot of different tests yeah and they did it the under continuous light which is like lab conditions they did them under fluctuating light which is sort of more like realistic in terms of mimicking what's happening in nature and often more stressful to the plants um, and so they very carefully tested all of them.
1: And I just want to mention that they also did a control here. So as well as making all of these cybrids where you're, for example putting um, the the chloroplast and mitochondrial genome of c twenty four into coal, they also used this special um, clever system of the haploid inducer lines to put c twenty four back into c twenty four and this is a kind of like negative control thing to make sure that the the method of using the haploid inducer itself isn't making any phenotypic changes because otherwise you might like there might be an extra problem with that system that we're not aware of and that's then changing the measurements but they found that their like c24 into c24 made with the the haploid inducer looked exactly like a c24 that was just not made with a haploid inducer so this was kind of a, a good control to have in there as well
0: yeah and uh, in the end they collected almost 2000 different phenotypes although i struggled to find an exact definition of what the phenotype meant but then they filtered them to avoid some overrepresentation so i guess many of these phenotypes looked very much alike and so they were grouped It was together. also
1: including things like, um, like a change in metabolite A, a change in metabolite B, I think, this kind of yeah. stuff. But it's still a very impressive amount of work.
0: And then they filtered them so that you can actually understand the data a little bit better. And they ended up with just over 90 different phenotypes that are actually different enough that you can do some interesting analysis on them. And then they looked at where does the variation within them come from. So mm-hmm. they traced back... Uh, from the phenotype um, what was causing the phenotype Uh, and over 90% of that just comes from the nuclear DNA which isn't a big surprise um, but as that it it means that a lot of what changes in the nucleus has then a direct effect on the on the phenotype of the plant Mm -hmm. Um, but then there is the rest of it. There's like about 8% left um, that's not from a nucleus. And of the about 3% are from just a plasmotype, so changes within the mitochondrial and chloroplast DNA. And about 5% are from the combination of plasmotype and nuclear type. So these are phenotypes that you would only observe in, in 5% of the cases. Um Within specific plasma type, nucleotide. Five percent of the
1: variation. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's, it's not five percent of the cases. It's five percent of the variation is explained yeah. by neither the nucleus nor the plasmid itself, um, but by the interaction between those two. So if they are interacting with other ones, that's a different infra, But like a interacting with X is giving this certain amount of variation. Yeah. And although that's like quite a small percent. This was kind of on average but in some cases it was a much larger impact depending on either the different um, genotypes and plasma types which were sorry nucleotide and plasma types which were involved there or also depending on different phenotypes that they were measuring. So maybe um, if you're looking at the influence on biomass I think the example they used was the cybrid with a Burr nucleotide and a Lura type. Suddenly they got quite a strong um, interaction nearly one quarter of the variation um, in the shoot biomass could be based on this interaction phenotype something like this i think
0: and because this is now like the the actual data they go into great detail there um and i think it's too much for for now but some of the things that they found that i i found remarkable were first of all that all of these cybers were viable um i already said that in this other species this evening primrose uh certain combinations there are just lethal they just don't work together and here although the the accessions that it shows were quite diverse um all of them worked together at least well enough that the plants survived even if they might have had mm. some defects might have had some photosynthetic inefficiencies they were still viable um, and that in itself was a surprise uh, to the researchers
1: but I think the authors did comment that they think the phylogenetic distance might contribute to how strong this epistatic effect was. So maybe if you had some slightly more distant um, related accessions, you might get even even stronger phenotypes.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, and then you already said like some epistatic effects. Um, these are effects that are uh, um, more or less powerful than just the sum of the individual uh, phenotypes of the uh, parents. So if uh, parent 1 and parent 2 have a, each a certain phenotype and you combine them um, in an epistatic effect, uh, the outcome is not linear. So you, you might have one that's uh, very strong, um, that's that's together, they're much stronger than they would be individually. And you could see some of those uh, in some of these crosses, which is an important finding to, uh, to sort of understand or predict the outcome of certain crosses.
1: Mm-hmm. And one of the other things was that Mostly they found that the effects were more pronounced under these fluctuating light conditions. Um, and I think this is more a general comment. It's what we expect, but it's kind of a comment on how we should be doing our science in the future because up until about five years ago, people were mostly using very controlled conditions with steady light. And there's a lot of discussion now in the field that we should be using, yes, control conditions, but things which more... Um, accurately represent what you see out in the real world because obviously plants in the real world are not challenged with beautiful growth chambers with easy living situations so
0: and to wrap this this whole story up i think um it's important to talk a little bit about the impact of this so i mean they set up a basic system now and they showed how powerful it can be but this was all done in arabidopsis and it's very cool to understand the basics in arabidopsis but it becomes really interesting when you take the same idea of the system and put this now in crops. And in maize, there's already a a haploid inducer line known. So if you would adapt that, you could do the same study in maize. And in maize, you Mm. have even more cultivars, you have what's called elite lines. So these lines that are used in actual agriculture. um, And you could then do such a crossing experiment there and understand much better how the plasmotype interacts with the nuclear type. And then if you understand that, then you can actually use that in a targeted approach and trying to get a plant that's more resistant, that has more yield, that has better photosynthetic efficiency, because you find the optimum chloroplast uh, genome for the op- optimal nuclear genome. And uh this is what's like that's what's really cool for the future with such a system
1: yeah, yeah. oh sorry <laughs> it was my turn. um wrap it up it was called reciprocal Cybrids reveal how Organelles genomes affect plant phenotype it came out in nature plants this month and it's from flood et al so go and check out the article if you want to see all of the many many crazy nearly 2000 phenotypes they measured with all of their different plant cybrids
0: yeah i will also link the twitter thread so you can also get uh, the first authors digest of their work and a little bit of a behind the scenes which i often find just as exciting as the actual paper is having a look behind the scenes how all of that came together to result in such a um, publication
1: plant. Yeah, it's me this time. Um and in this choice I have made today is not to do a species of plant but instead to talk really briefly about a genus. And that's simply because I chose a species but not very much is known about that species so I thought I would extend it to a genus. The genus is Prazophyllum. Prazo actually comes from the I want to say Greek, could be Latin, from the ancient Greek word Prazon. Do you know what? Prazon is in ancient Greek, Yoram. Um,
0: no, I skipped my ancient prazon. Greek. If it would have been in Latin, obviously I could have translated <clears throat> every last bit. But not... For.
1: So, um, prazon means leak and philon obviously means leaf. So this is called prazophilum. Prazo um, that was a very Australian way of saying it, but that's okay because prazo. it is prazophilum. Um, Sorry, because I will
0: allowed to travel into Australia now.
1: Um, It was anyway, because prazophyllum is a genus of about 140 species of flowering plants, which are found in Australia and also in New Zealand. So prazophyllum, it's got that leek name, but it's not a leek, it's actually a leek orchid. So when you imagine how it looks, it looks very much like a little orchid flower. Um, They're quite beautiful and they're found pretty much throughout Australia. They're not super remarkable in that yeah, they can go from 15 centimetres to 2 metres tall. Maybe one of their interesting features is that they potentially at least some of them flower after um, fire happens and they seem to flower at the same time as some other species which are completely unrelated, the grass tree Xanthorea which has made people think that maybe they um, have the same pollinators as the Xanthorea which I'm not sure if that's super likely. I think it's just that they both respond to fire, but who am I to judge? This is in the (laughs) Wikipedia article, so I didn't actually look at the original research. Um, But anyway, it's a group of pretty unassuming-looking little orchids. But the reason I chose these guys um, this time around is because of the wildfires, which we've mentioned a lot in um, in the bushfires, sorry, we've mentioned in the last couple of weeks. I'm sure you all know already, if you haven't been hiding under a rock, that Australia is on fire to a very terrible degree. And we've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast and also on the blog that there are a lot of plants that have been, uh, (laughs) animals that have been hurt. There have also been people who have lost their home and even people who have lost their lives because of these fires, and that's terrible. But we do want to draw attention to the fact that there are also a lot of plant species which have been threatened by these fires. So um, we're going to put a link in the show notes to an Australian government website which just lists um, the species that have been threatened by the current fires. So there's 16 mammal species, there's 14 frog species, there's 9 birds and 7 reptiles, 4 insects, 4 fish and 1 spider species which are currently threatened um, in the area where the fires are. Um, but there's also 272 different plant species which have been threatened. Um, and some of the threatened species on this list of everything threatened that's now currently in the way of the fire are critically endangered, which means they really are very, very vulnerable to be lost. And the reason I chose these prazophyllum species is because there's about four or five different prazophyllum species orchids which are in the range of the fires which have already lost more than 80 percent of their likely or known distribution and which fall into this um very endangered um species list so i just wanted to use this little guy as an example or kind of a, a a comment on the fact that the plant species are also suffering and it's really sad because again these are things that don't exist anywhere else in the world and they could be lost forever so
0: yeah. If you look now on your podcast app, um, we're actually putting a, a picture now as the cover image um, of this this uh, species, of this genus. Um, and we have done so already in the last couple of episodes. So whenever we're talking about the plant now, I'll try to put a picture there so you can have an image going along with uh, what we're talking about. Um, yeah, and the fires, it's just, it's one of these topics where I chose to try to not read too much about it because I find it so extremely heartbreaking to read all about the, the details, what's going on. At the same time, I know, like, being informed is important to sort of act in the future on this. But, um, yeah, it's just... It's terrible.
1: It's something that people are discussing a lot, like the... I mean, generally, for all of these environmental tragedies, especially ones which are so far beyond our control, there's this... Um, trade off between staying informed and getting into this what's it called environmental despair or something Mm like ecological despair I think is is the term. So um despair I'm trying to look up the there's a special term for it. We'll try and find it and link it um on the the podcast show notes as well. But yeah. Anyway, that was my choice of the day. So it's the um Prazophyllum genus which is found in Australia in unfortunately in the zone of the fire. But also, there are some species found in New Zealand.
0: I think it's climate despair. Climate based despair, based on my indeed. very quick googling.
1: Diversity in
0: Oh yeah, that's me. <laughs> Today, <laughs> I want to talk um, about uh, a researcher. She's not exactly uh, a plant researcher, but um, she's a medical uh, researcher and practitioner but i found the story quite interesting that's why i chose her so her name is Sophia louisa jacks blake um she lived from 1840 to 1912 so in the 19th uh, century and um she lived in england and in scotland and she was became known because she was part of the edinburgh seven i don't know if you've heard about them
1: not at all, no. The
0: Edinburgh Seven were seven women who started, uh, who began studying uh, medicine at the University of Edinburgh in 1869. And the way there was quite interesting for uh, Sophia jacks um because she... Um, she was first homeschooled and she had then some some uh, formal education Uh, and then she traveled to the us and tried to study medicine at harvard and she was denied there because at the time they said we can't make any provisions to cater to the needs of a woman uh, at the university (laughs) which is what i don't know what it was but like (laughs) yeah um it was i mean it was systematic uh, systemic uh, sexism at the time um Mm. but so in harvard she was denied and she she tried and also in new york but before they could deny her as well she had to travel back home um and so she moved to scotland where she tried again and she tried to get into the university of edinburgh um and she was denied there as well because they said again for a single woman, we can't make whatever changes they thought that they would have to make to allow a woman to study there. Um, And they said, for one woman, we can't do that. So she found six other women who were also interested in studying medicine and together they reapplied and then a court ruled um, that – that they had to take her in, and so that they became known as the Edinburgh Seven, who started studying medicine there in Scotland, um, and were the first women ever, uh, in I think in the UK or even worldwide, who studied medicine, um, and mm-hmm. that in itself was was uh, quite cool. But what struck me with the story as well was um, the reaction of men I, I wrote already this week on on twitter that whenever i research something for this topic i involuntarily research uh cases where or like how horrible men have been throughout the ages because i'm just going to read a, a little section here from the uh, wikipedia about her as the women began to demonstrate that they could compete on equal terms with the male students hostility towards them began to grow they received obscene letters where followed home had fireworks attached to their front door mud thrown at them Uh, This culminated in the Surgeon's Hall riot uh, on 18th of November, 1870, when the women arrived to sit in an anatomy exam at the Surgeon's Hall, and an angry mob of over 200 men were gathered outside, throwing much rubbish and insults at the women. So, pretty much what we see now, whenever we have uh, women taking just the tiniest share of of privilege or, or just participation online you have like immediately this mob of men being like ah we don't want women here like you have the whole thing of like GamerGate. you have the thing whenever you have uh, female actresses taking on uh, lead roles you immediately have like this mob of men uh, coming in there and essentially doing the same as they did like over a hundred years ago throwing mud and insults and physically threatening and hurting even um, the women and um, and just like it- oh I just write on
1: I just read to the next part of the wiki
0: yeah so the-
1: influential f- members of the medical family eventually persuaded the university to refuse graduation to the women yeah by appealing decisions to higher courts
0: Yeah, and they actually, they um, took away the degrees that were already awarded. Um, uh, Yeah, and so they were actually kicked out of it. Um, And then uh, the the Edinburgh 7 went on to different European universities to actually get the proper formal education that they were allowed at different places. Um, Mm -hmm. But also, what it also says there is that these events they made national headlines and they actually gained more supporters which is again something you see today as well like you have people who are attacked uh, online and at the same time they gain also supporters um so it's i just found it funny is the wrong word here i just i found it striking how similar um, the events are there and how little has changed for the better over time
1: the more time. things change the more they stay the same
0: yeah um, but yeah in the end she continued to be a successful physician she opened up um, a school of medicine for women in Edinburgh and uh, what was also mentioned in there that um, she suffered from some me- uh, mental health issues, so she she took a break for I think two years, um, where she it did, didn't go much into details, but she had some mental health uh, issues, and it was also assumed at the time that she was in a lesbian relationship with uh, Doctor Margaret Todd. Um, so,
1: with another strong independent woman. Yeah,
0: with another strong independent woman, and so yeah, that's. Um, and we just uh, sets Sophia Louisa Jacks-Blake um, who fought a lot to help women enter the university and study medicine uh, in the UK or at least in Scotland here. Um, yeah, so I think it's a very cool story and it's a little bit sad how little we changed for the better since then that we still have these mobs. We still have like the, the very strong aggress- aggression against women whenever they just try to take part like they're not taking away anything they're just taking part
1: the other thing i see in um in the wikipedia article is that she's arguing that it's the natural instinct of women to concern themselves with the care of the sick which i mean yeah whatever natural instinct but it's something which strikes me it's like women get told oh yes you're caring you know you like to look after children you like to care you like to look after like people who were ill or whatever but then it's oh we don't mean medicine oh no that's we weren't talking about like actually like delivering the babies or actually like looking no 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 that's not where we went that's for men that's for men this kind of like bizarre dichotomy that people can hold in their mind
0: yeah
1: um (laughs) tegan says bah.
0: and i i second that so tegan tell us about a bias
1: bah to bias as well um, so again we have some cognitive bias up for you today and today I spun the bias wheel and chose something on the too much information um, side of the map and this belongs to a cluster of too much information which is called bizarre funny visually striking or anthropomorphic things stick out more than non-bizarre unfunny things um, which is basically because we have too much information to process we focus on things which kind of stand out from the rest And in this subcategory, I went for the one which had the most German-sounding name. So I went with the von Restorff effect. effect. Um, The von Restorff effect is actually coined after a German psychiatrist and pediatrician, Hedwig. So female power again here. Hedwig von Restorff, who was around from 1906 to 1962. And she found that when participants were presented with a list of categorically similar items with one distinctive isolated item, their memory kind of went for the one, which was the weird one, the the odd one Mm -hmm. out. So it's also known as isolation effect. It's just the idea that if you see a group of things and something looks a little bit different, you're more likely to remember the different thing. Um, I quite like it because the example they give on Wikipedia is... um, this bunch of words, see if you can remember one of them in particular. Desk, chair, bed, table, chipmunk, dresser, stool, couch.
0: Yeah, the chipmunk stands out, yeah.
1: Yeah, I just want to mention that chipmunk will stand out in amongst any single list of words that you have, even if you have beaver, badger, dolphin, fish, chipmunk. Chipmunk is still standing out because chipmunk is a weird thing, but
0: <laughs> I think... Um, <laughs> There's hardly anything that sounds like chipmunk, so just on a on a sound level... It will stand out.
1: Yeah, I mean chipmunk, chipmunk, chipmunk. It's a chipmunk, and chipmunks have I don't know chipmunk. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's basically the entirety of the thing. It seems to work um, in young people and old people. It's
0: yeah, it's just can we use it? (laughs) Like, can we use it in a way if we have to remember (laughs) something? We surround it with things that are very much not like it. And then we remember like the long list of IKEA furniture and then there's a chipmunk that we remember because we wanted to think about chipmunks later t- today. I
1: don't I can't think of an obvious way how you'd use it without having to add more information that would make your brain heavier. Yeah. So I mean maybe as a teaching method it could be something where you you have like something that's kind of I mean maybe you could use it where instead of having um just a different word you somehow change the way you present a message in like a talk so maybe you could Mm. you know change font color or change like i mean font color is a bit of a basic example but suddenly like mix it up a little bit and that might make people remember that part better than other parts like this this could be something which would work but honestly i am making that up as i go along so (laughs) i don't know um psychologists get get in and tell me why that is wrong
0: (laughs) okay um then Let's just move on. It's like cutting this this short. Let's have a bunch of random information and see if any of this stands out for being different.
1: I have the one that will stand out from being different, no matter what you say after it. (laughs) Fluorescent pink slug. (laughs) Fluorescent pink slug.
0: Okay, go for it. Fluorescent pink slug. That's...
1: That's my entire um, point. No, it was just <laughs> another thing related to the Australian fires. Um, there's an article on The Guardian which is called Fluorescent Pink Slug. You remembered it, didn't you? Unique to Australian mountaintop survives bushfire. And this is just that there's a very bright pink slug called the Mount Kaputar slug. Um, and the fires have burnt through their entire habitat, but at least 60 of them have been found alive after the fire which is lovely because it's a very very beautiful slug
0: oh no i hate it
1: it's so cute and if you (laughs) scroll down on the article you'll see a picture of the slug resting in a bed of moss and it's just like he's so happy and slimy
0: no um i have i have (laughs) what is it trichophobia the like unease about the the holes and they have like many slugs do they have this breathing hole and it just gives me shivers i hate it um, to okay. share this beautiful hate of it. Um, there's a picture of it now in your podcast app and also in the show notes. Um,
1: and also Yoram is wrong. It's a really beautiful slug. And there's a photo of him. There's a photo of him camouflaging next to a pink pink leaf. And there's like a pink leaf and a pink slug. And it's sad because all his friends got burned and he's like trying to make friends with the leaf. No.
0: <sighs> I can't. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying that I'm okay. happy that they b- <laughs>
1: Guys, your arm is wrong. Slug is cute. Um,
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm wrong about this. Um,
1: (laughs) Alrighty. (laughs)
0: um, I have something that we talked about already on Instagram and I wanted to mention it here as well because I quite liked it and I spent some time reading it up. Um, It's an article about our world in data um, and they looked at different types of food and they wanted to answer the question if we want to reduce our carbon footprint is eating local the right way uh, the right way to go and so um, they looked at different studies that were done on the carbon footprint uh, or the co2 equivalent emissions of different types of food and uh, try to figure out how much of the total emissions is due to transport from the producer to the consumer um, and also like retail because often they say like go to the to go to the farmers and buy directly from the farmers because that's mm-hmm. more organic um, and has a lower CO2 footprint. And what I found is um, I, I think it was surprising. And I found that um, it doesn't really matter. Transportation distance doesn't matter if you look at the total CO2 emissions or CO2 equivalent emissions. Um, the vast majority goes to things like land use, irrigation, fertilization, mm-hmm. um, for animals, it goes to like animal feed. Um, so, uh, these things are so much bigger than the transport that it actually doesn't matter where something comes from, um, compared to how it is produced, um,
1: isn't that it doesn't matter, but it's it's a very negligible. It's a small percentage yeah. of the entire carbon footprint. It's something like five percent.
0: If you if you eat or if you stop eating beef, for example, beef is one of the worst things. Um, if you stop eating beef, you're doing so much more to your footprint than if you start b- buying beef from local sources. Um, and they, they st-
1: And we would like to mention that we're not against local sources. It can also be nice to s- support your local economy. Yeah. For other reasons but if the reason is carbon footprint yeah then stop eating
0: beef yeah um and so the the, the article goes on has some interesting numbers yeah as you said like if you would just eat locally you would at the best would make up about five percent less of your carbon footprint or uh, would you reduce your carbon footprint by five percent which is about the same as not eating beef one day a week so if you would eat be eating beef every single day and you just cut one day you would do the same for your footprint as if you would
1: does that mean i'm eating like one meal of beef a day or i'm like every like every day i'm just like gorging (laughs) only on beef like my diet is entirely just like i have a cow i start every week with a cow and then by the end of the week i have like the tail left over
0: yeah and if you maybe the other if you manage to leave a little bit more than just the other um then you're already improving your footprint as much as if you would just buy your cow locally so can <laughs> um <laughs> so the take-home message of this thing is to, to stress less about where your food comes from think more about what you're actually eating so things like like meats dairy especially they have a bad carbon footprint um high on the list are also chocolate and coffee um but there uh, i want to say that these things are based on a uh, per kilogram basis and you just eat much more cheese in in uh, weight then you eat chocolate or coffee at least for most people yeah cheese or meat like dairy or Mm -hmm. or meats then you would eat chocolate and coffee so i think there um i'm sort of a little bit apologetic because i like both of these things but also i don't (laughs) i mean eat 500 grams of chocolate in a week I no like i know some people who come close.
1: We do have a friend we know who eats a lot of chocolate. Yeah, so she. Sh- we should talk. We should have an intervention. She should on maybe
0: it. reduce it. Um,
1: no, I'm thinking of somebody else. I'm thinking of a male person. Ah, okay.
0: Then we know anyway. two people that should <laughs> reduce it. Like we personally, we go to them and we'll shame them. <laughs> uh, but you guys you should just um think about like uh what are you eating and less about where it's coming from unless it's f- uh, flown in by plane which is something that's not really declared on the labels unfortunately but mm. um this has like the has 50 times the carbon footprint of bringing it in by truck or ship uh, ship so um things that are
1: yeah one of my my german friends once told me that like getting food to hamburg from you know South America, is the same as getting it then from Hamburg to Berlin, which is only two hours on a truck. Which is basically saying that the footprint of moving it all the way across the world was not huge because it's it's the ship is quite an efficient way of of moving things. Yeah. Again, there there are other benefits for buying local. Yeah. Um, but just from the carbon point of view, pur- purely meat-free Monday. Yeah.
0: Or meat-free week. And Tuesday. Yeah.
1: Or Wednesday. <laughs> okay. Um. I have some disappointing or some some pr- depressing things I want to talk about. Not disappointing, something depressing. Very quickly to discuss.
0: Yeah, depression.
1: Yeah, I mean, so it's it's not anything new and depressing. It's just the fact that um, we all know that in Wuhan right now, there's a virus that is, um, or a pneumonia, not a virus, a pneumonia-like illness. It is a virus. It is a virus. It is a virus. It's a coronavirus. And it's um, infected so far. I think four thousand five hundred people. The last time mm-hmm. I looked, it might be more by now. Um, yeah and it's quite rapidly going through the population there's now a shutdown on the city um it's spread to australia singapore it's spread to germany now there's been a case um, in europe so it's it's quite terrifying it's reminiscent of the SARS outbreak that we had back in like 2002 um kind of similar similar style of sickness but um yeah, this is all very terrifying, but I just wanted to bring two things to attention. Firstly, the scientific response has been quite amazing. So already within a few days of... Um, let me just find the data quickly. Dun, 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 dun. Um, I think within 10 days of the announcements being made um, of the first report, scientists had already released the genetic sequence of the coronavirus, which is something which can help us to study it and hopefully defeat it. And... Um, there's been a lot of free trading of information put on um, preprint archives like bioarchive um, with scientists working together and really making their their data accessible to other scientists as a way of trying to speed up the rate at which we basically defeat this problem. We We, we find cures or vaccines to solve it. So it's a really terrible situation, but this is the silver lining is that at least the response has been that scientists are working together and at unprecedented speed to try to race against the clock and race against the virus to hopefully um, find a cure. So that's something nice. Um, I know some of the large science magazines have announced that if people do put um, details on this virus on preprint servers, they won't use that to prevent publication in their... um, Journal later on, so this is one of the the concerns of putting things on preprint that is is in the um, field generally. So that's one thing. Um, there's a Washington Post article that we'll link to in the show notes. Um, the second thing is there's a lot of disinformation spreading already about the coronavirus. Whenever there's any health scare, this tends to happen. Um, so I was looking at BuzzFeed News. Um, I think I saw this actually though via the Nature. Um, uh, 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 what's it called? The the news briefing that I get every day from, from Nature, from, I think, Flora Graham over there. Um, so BuzzFeed now has a list kind of of stories that have turned up which are fake. So they just want to keep the fake science to a minimum, the fake news to a minimum, so you can see um, what's mm-hmm. real. So we'll also put that link. I'm sure they'll update it as it goes, but you can also check out other websites which have similar information available but don't be stupid don't panic because panic can also hurt and kill people um, but read what's really happening <laughs> Yoram and I just had a very like bit of a long discussion about what we actually do know about the coronavirus and what we don't know about the coronavirus and it seems there's a lot of information out there and Yoram and I couldn't even agree about whether we should be scared or not scared and There's problems on both sides, because on one hand, I think a lot of the reason we're not scared is because we're not in China, so it's easy for us to not be scared. Um, But also, we just don't know enough now to know how dangerous this is, which also gives a lot of fear. But there's also a lot of misinformation. um, And I mentioned I've seen something which my friends send around as a, this is terrible, um, which was a scientist, you know, a video with the title, scientist says 60 million could be dead from virus. And the video was of a scientist talking months before the coronavirus was even known about, and he was talking about similar virus types if, like, doing, I think, some simulations, some modelling, and saying this is what could happen if blah, blah, and blah. And it was basically an example of of a um, news website very irresponsibly using this kind of scare tactic clickbait to get people to read their articles. And this is one of the problems at the moment where yeah it can get sensationalized as well so i think it's it is scary whenever there's something new that comes about especially when we don't know anything about it um it's really important that there are scientists um, health professionals who are actively working on trying to figure out as much as possible because we can only fight things when we have the information but like from what we can tell it's it's really a mix of messages that are coming into the world depending on what channels you're following so panic can also be dangerous um
0: yeah but yeah. yeah i myself i had some wrong numbers in my head so be careful um when you see like when you just glance over posts on social media um you might get the wrong information you had as i just had happening to me um
1: uh, but we just basically both of us just went and had a quick like uh, google drive and we came up with completely different stuff yeah. from both of us googling basically the same questions. so yeah it's it's a mess yeah, yeah, out there be
0: careful with the people uh, spreading information assess for yourself critically how uh, how likely that is. But we'll link, like, the BuzzFeed article is definitely a good place to start looking um, because they uh, identified proven misinformation. Uh, and I have something now that's much less controversial nor depressing. Um, I have something, it's very simple. I found it on Twitter. It's a clay plant cell. Somebody, like, carved a little, uh, put together a little plant cell. Let me see if I can copy and paste that image so you can see that again and it's again an image you, can, you might see now in your podcast app um if that's working so somebody took some colored clay and made um a cell in a in a long tube and then did like cross sections and then it looks just like a cross section of a cell so you have the nucleus you have um the endoplasmatic reticulum i let's send you another link because that thing here is not working um Brain. You have the the ER, you have the the chloroplasts and um some things are not up uh, exactly to scale. The mitochondria are a little bit big um in that <laughs> image. But it,
1: it Oh wow it it's just beautiful. looks very cute,
0: very nice.
1: When you said clay, I was imagining like um modeling clay <laughs> that you make no, like like clay that you make Play-do cups like, out of. This is like yeah, fimo Play
0: would probably yeah. be a better word, FEMO or Play um so like very colorful very nice and it has like a cell wall and you have um the plasmodesma in the cell walls and so on so it's
1: excuse me how do i buy this i want to buy this
0: (laughs) i think uh, i think the person made it for their own fun unfortunately
1: no (laughs) everybody's saying where can i buy this like every single person on the, on the twitter comments is like i want i want, i want, it. This I want to this is another
0: detour but I, I i heard that when you write something like this like i want to buy this or <laughs> i want to have this on a t-shirt then there are bots on the internet that um, pick that up and then they create like t-shirt shops that are made on demand mm. by some scammers that like they pretty much
1: you heard that on baby geniuses i heard ah, that was as on well baby
0: geniuses okay Yeah, then Mm -hmm. we both have the same source of information. there But so maybe it will pop up on some like random bot infested. On a T-shirt? I don't want a (laughs) T-shirt. (laughs) T-shirt or another like merch shop shop where you didn't buy, like you think you buy this actual clay thing, but you buy just a picture of it (laughs) because it's it's just a a scam. Oh yeah, go look at it. This
1: is at Kim Snowdon Twelve, but we'll put the link in. Yeah, we put the link in the
0: show notes. Um, it looks very cute
1: i have a question for you yarm mm-hmm. what color is penguin shit
0: oh that's a good question <laughs> i don't know if it's a good question um i'm just trying to think now of the diet
1: think back to when you're watching pingu as a child and just they think didn't like shit there, didn't they? or happy feet like when he danced a little bit too much what color was it
0: I mean, I know that usually shit is brown because of the digested blood, like just from the recycling of your own body. It's the, the heme that gets oxidized and then that turns... Would I
1: have asked you if it was brown? No, Yarm. I would not have asked you yeah, if so it was Yeah,
0: so they must do something different then. Like have less blood recycling going on or eat something that's very strongly dyed. Um, I'm going to say blue now. Like I have no idea. It's pink. It's pink, just like the slug.
1: I think it's because they eat krill and I think Uh, it's because the krill contains a red pigment called astaxanthin which originally comes from some phytoplankton Um, but one really cool fact I learned is that you can actually then see the pink coloring from space because pink on white ice actually shows up really nicely and is quite different from any other signal that might be from like plants maybe green or rocks maybe brown like pink is something which kind of stands out so if you Google what color is penguin guano, one of the other questions is, can you see penguin poop from space? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, you can.
0: <laughs> I'm just, I have a, a Vox.com article here. And there's a lot of penguins standing there that are very pink. So they're very much covered in their own shit.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Somebody might have photoshopped that.
0: No, I think penguins are dirty. Aren't you like the fa- like? Aren't penguins your favorite thing in the world?
1: I quite like penguins, but I don't think anybody doesn't like penguins, right? Is there somebody you know who doesn't like penguins? Like After
0: seeing them covered in their own feces now, I'm (laughs) re-evaluating my stance on penguins.
1: Dirty little shits. Um, At the
0: same time, you can't see my poop from space, so they have that going for them.
1: (laughs) Hopefully not. (laughs) If you're doing things well, if you're doing hygiene right.
0: (laughs) Okay, um, my last fun fact for the day is um, just a... A paper, a short thing um, that looked at uh, how the uh, production value um, affects YouTube videos. So this is, uh, uh, I think, a New Zealand study. It's on our um And...
1: Let's have a rule, where we just put the links on the show notes instead of. No, I just wanted to out. say like
0: where, where it's from because I don't know if it's I think it's a university library yeah, it's a peer-reviewed learned. study. Um, uh. But uh, in the study, the author authors or author I don't actually know, um, had about um, <laughs> oh God. had a lot of people watch two types of video, um, several hundred actually. Um, Uh, two types of video one was called a professionally generated content and one was called user generated content so one like very high production value one sort of done in your own living room and then yeah they asked 900 people which ones they like better and which ones they would like to see again um and the results were that the user generated content so the lower production value content was liked much more by the by the audience (laughs) um but really? the professionally generated content um was voted higher to be watched again so if people were asked like mm-hmm. if you have to see one of these videos again then they would rather watch the pretty well pro- uh, well produced one um
1: but did they ask did they ask like which because usually it's not about watching it again it's about watching other content from the same producer
0: yeah. i mean in this case i think they just watched two videos so not like two types of channels two videos um Mm.
1: but then if you said like would you rather see something by the person who made this or by the person who made this they might say i'd rather watch the shitty thing because it was more interesting i liked it more i would rather watch more content from the shitty person than from the beautiful but boring person
0: um in this study, like, in, in the abstract that I read I, about this... I don't know this. if
1: you've noticed from my tone, but this is a conversation that Joram and I yeah. have a lot because Joram is a production snob and I am very much a content is, is, is trumping snob. Like, that's my stance. So, yeah, my po- I don't know if this is a win for no, you, Joram. I, I don't know if this study is a win for this you. this
0: is a, a, it's a win for no one because, like, whatever your position is, you can use this data. Like, I can say, look, if you want to... People continuously enjoy your stuff, it should look nice at the same time, you can but say... I don't want they- people to,
1: like, read my... I don't want people to listen to the same podcast over and over again. Like, I would be concerned if my audience is listening to this podcast, like, 18 times. I want them to listen to this one and be yeah. like, you know what? I'll hear more of Tegan and Joram fighting. Let's, like, queue that up again for next week. But I hope they have a different argument <laughs> next week, not always the same argument, because that would be boring. <laughs> yeah. A beautifully produced but boring argument. Yeah.
0: I mean, I I don't overproduce this stuff, here, and I think my point of is. is if you put in just a little bit of effort, you can go quite far uh, with it as well. I mean, I produce videos, and I don't go like completely crazy on the production value of it. Um, I keep it at a reasonable pace, but at the same time, I don't just like put my my cell phone at the far end of a corridor and just yell across the corridor to get my points across. Um, I try to make it like look and sound nice enough. Um, but yeah, so this is just like this study pretty much shows nothing because whatever stance you have, dude,
1: <laughs> now you're just insulting no, the authors.
0: No, not insulting the authors. Just the, the <laughs> 900 people gave a very inconclusive uh, answer to the question. It's
1: fine. They hate me too. They told you that um, me that your videos have poor production <laughs> value, so it's fine. Uh, they said it's really weird. Like when when one of the videos was Yoram's videos. Not only was the like production value, it was it was they wouldn't watch it again, and they found it boring. It was really really weird. Um, I have something else. A, a word that okay. I learned. Do you want to hear that? Anti fragile. Anti fragile.
0: So robust.
1: Nope. Anti fragile. It's the it's not exactly the same as robust. It's the opposite of fragile. So this is coming from a book by somebody called, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Um, But I just came I don't even know how I came upon this word at one point um, It's the idea that some things actually get stronger From having things that shock them Or that like should cause stress or disorder That makes them stronger Mm -hmm. So it's not the same as robust Because robust just means you don't crack under the stress This is like anti-fragile Which means that stress makes you stronger And um, one example is like bones, where bones actually become stronger due to external load. So I don't know. I didn't read the book. I hope it's not something disgusting and bigoted because I just came across the word and thought it was really cool and I didn't look into it further. But um, I like this idea that there can be anti-fragile. Yeah,
0: that's cool. Do you have a cat fact? Yeah,
1: I do. Okay. I have... Can I segue into the cat fact via other random talkers? Uh, you
0: can do that. Yeah, I don't really have a cat fact. I just have a, a, a tale of two foxes, but maybe I'll do that another time.
1: Well, we're going to go weasel, ferret, cat. So maybe we can go weasel, fox, ferret, cat. Weasel, fox, fox. Okay, weasel is weasel words. I've learned what weasel words are. Probably you already know no, what they I are. I don't
0: know what weasel words are. Apart from something hard to it's- pronounce for a German. <laughs>
1: a weasel word uh, a weasel word is a statement um that is intentionally ambiguous or misleading but which is kind of giving some sort of anonymous authority so some people say oh. or it is often said or so this is something which it gets flagged in wikipedia um and it's basically when people are making an ambiguous claim and trying to you know researchers believe most people think and it's not actually saying anything because it's it's giving authority without actually having the reference or having the real facts. I do that all the time. It's, um, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Many people say, it is known. It's basically (laughs) like somebody saying, it is known. My entire thesis Um, is is written like that. (laughs) Your (laughs) thesis is, it is known. You just place (laughs) it after each sentence. Like, photosystem one Mm. is um, controlled by ALB three, which blah, 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 blah
0: it is known <laughs> many scientists believe
1: reference needed.
0: <laughs> according to many researchers uh,
1: <laughs> okay that's the weasel fact what the fuck uh, the fox fox fact?
0: fact it's just a short story because i didn't have a cat fact so i just um thought about um what happened to me last week um i live in a sort of not really on the outskirts of berlin but definitely not the center so it's a little bit more remote here than in other places of berlin and i have a garden and sometimes, especially in, Give them your address, in, your in winter, there is um there. there yeah, yeah, where do you live? <laughs> in Reinickendorf, and actually, Reinickendorf uh, <laughs> comes from the ver- word "Reinike," oh which is God. another word for fox. <laughs> um, and there's some there's sometimes foxes coming here. Yeah, there's actually in the in the emblem of the borough there is a fox. Um, and there's foxes coming here, and so the other day I had two foxes in my garden. And my cats were also allowed to go outside right now, uh, at, at the same time. So I had my my um, male cat was sitting in the uh, in the plots there, and there was like on the other side of a fence there was a fox, and just right behind him was another fox. And I was sit I was standing on a balcony looking down at the entire situation uh, couldn't really do much but the foxes seemed very relaxed like they were stretching and yawning and doing lots of sort of very passive and non-aggressive behavior but then my my other cat came on the balcony looked down in the garden saw what's going on and immediately ran downstairs out in the garden and went after the mm. the, the foxes um, so the foxes were very relaxed they just jumped over the fence she was trying to protect. The and other she cat, was, no, maybe. I think, she was very territorial about it. And she, w- she was like a bushy tail. She came like, like sneaking up on. Mm. Like she tried to go for one of the foxes, and then I think we have a shed in the back, and one of the foxes was sitting on the shed. And I think she didn't see the fox for a long time, so she's she she was sort of like sneaking up on the other fox, and then suddenly looked up and saw that there's one right above her, looking down at her in a cur- curious way um and <laughs> she's like oh shit 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 and then i i quickly uh, went downstairs to sort of separate the two species um and the foxes <laughs> were really relaxed and so i had like i i stood next to the fence i could like film them and take photos and just look at them and they were just really really pretty so that was my um
1: and they're fine in germany right Yeah, like it's we not- don't
0: have rabies here um so the
1: No, I mean, in Australia, a fox is a bad thing because they eat all of our small animals. So, like, foxes are evil in Australia, you know? No,
0: they... I mean, definitely they eat small animals here and birds and stuff. But um, we don't have that many endangered birds in the cities, at least, um, uh, that the foxes are a problem. I think the cats are much more of a problem than the foxes are. Uh, Mm. Yeah. And I actually applied for... um, There's a program from a research institution in here where you can get a wildlife camera for three months and put it in your garden to research wild animals in urban spaces. Oh, cool. And I applied to that. I hope I'll get it because that would be really cool. And I would get like a little like wildlife camera that would probably take mostly pictures of my cats, mm. but then the occasional fox. And we also had... Um, I forgot the word. What is the bears that wash their hands? In German, they're called wash bears.
1: <laughs> That's a raccoon. Yeah, we had... <laughs> Guys, that's logical. That's like the beautiful example of the logic of the German um, language. They're bears that wash things. It's a wash bear. Yeah. It's a raccoon. That's just like A, B, C, But we done. also have
0: raccoons here. And raccoons are not common in Germany. I think in the US, it's very common to, f- to see raccoons. Also, also, with, also rabies. with rabies. But here, um, yeah, I've, I see them very rarely, but I saw them in my garden as well. So I'm very curious to put up a camera and see if, they, if the raccoon comes more often.
1: You should just put fairy floss out in your garden and see if you yeah, can you know, like the, the raccoon washing the fairy floss. It's so floss.
0: sad. It's it. so sad.
1: If you haven't seen that yet on the internet, firstly, you haven't lived. What have you been doing with your life? And secondly, go and Google wash bear, no, <laughs> raccoon with fairy floss. It's the most beautiful and the saddest thing that you will ever see in your life. And it's possibly not the first time we've mentioned this on the podcast. Is
0: fairy floss... A word known in the U.S. Cotton candy, yeah. sorry,
1: cotton candy, sorry. That's the Australian word, yeah. I think.
0: Let me just see if you find it if you if you Google that. Okay.
1: I think actually that was a really beautiful cat fact to end on because it did actually involve cats. Yeah, it involves
0: cats and foxes. Um,
1: my cat fact was just that my my housemate sent me that meme. Have you seen the hold door the hold door meme with the cat? Hold It's just like you know. In Game of Thrones, Hodor. His name mm-hmm. is Hodor because it's hold the door, hold the door, hold the door, and it becomes Hodor. And then there's like a picture of a cat like poking a door, let me out, let me out, let me out, meow. And it's really, really, really cute. But it's it's not at all a fact. It's a meme. <laughs> it's not. It's not even. It's my just great. Favorite, We're gonna put that. I meme think my for you. favorite
0: cat meme is the one where you have the two women like shouting. Um, very angry like one is holding the other one back and then you have a cat looking uh sitting at the table with a weird face i don't know what the name of that meme is
1: oh yeah <laughs> um yarn will also link to that meme and this will just become a cat meme
0: podcast <laughs> woman yelling at cat meme is is the word of the meme it's really cool there's very good variations of that because <laughs> it's it's such a stark contrast so this is this was um, two scientists talk about memes, on in an audio <laughs> medium. Oh, look at the little cat. <laughs> I'll tr- I'll try to come up with a woman yelling at cat meme. Oh
1: my god, there's one that says "Last Christmas I gave you my heart" and then re-gifted. and it's like it's wham and a cat meme. It's everything I want in my life. <laughs> Last Christmas I gave you my heart. Last Christmas is the best Christmas song there ever was, and I will I will fight anybody who says that it's not that is all
0: alright yeah. we should go uh, if you want to see great cat <laughs> memes on social media follow us on twitter where we're at plant
1: <laughs> on facebook and instagram we're at plant and Pipets. quick housekeeping thank you very much for facebook we now have 3000 followers on facebook which is super exciting for us um, on Instagram, we're trying to make a hashtag, which is dress like a plant. So please go and dress like a plant and then put the hashtag dress like a plant, especially if you're a man, because I think this is something that normally the women are taking up. So let's have some diversity involved. Men, you can be a part of diversity when that make you feel good. Hashtag dress like a plant. Uh, <laughs>
0: what um, else? We have a block with stuff.
1: Oh, we post on Mondays and Wednesdays, unless I'm slow, in which case it's Mondays and Thursdays or Tuesdays and Thursdays. No, it's usually Mondays and Thursdays.
0: No, usually Mondays and Wednesdays. Wednesdays. Mondays <laughs> and Wednesdays is what we try um. to do. It can be any variation of that. Oh,
1: a- Tegan has been very busy recently. Um, yeah, so we're posting usually um, articles which are either basic facts or ideas from um, molecular plant biology or new science, new papers that we've read and we think are cool or general topics we want to raise to your attention so go and check that out and also if you have any ideas of things that you'd like to see commented on or clarified or represented send us links
0: and rate us on iTunes you know the drill go to somewhere and give us all of the stars
1: give us all of the stars
0: (laughs) 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 and And opening and closing music (laughs) is Caravana by Philip Gross and goodbye
1: and your um, violence is bad but next time we podcast you better have a theme song for whatever we say for the, the yeah. bias okay I can only sing bye bye bias so <laughs> many times
0: are you not getting gonna say goodbye are, are oh, you just bye? Rude, rude to I, our thought, listeners?
1: I thought you already I thought you already finished you just like decided to put the end music on
0: in post <laughs> like <with laughs> I was, I was waiting stuff. for you to you know say goodbye you, but no.
1: Oh, I was going to make some dickish comment about the quality of the podcast as well. <laughs>